invitation to come and to speak in your church uh, this weekend and for the two churches to combine together to be here in this one service. I hear that that's not done real usually, but I appreciate you doing that. I'm here in Portland this weekend because I have a teaching assignment down in Western Seminary that I'll be doing later this week. But uh, this day was free, and thank you so much for allowing me to be with you and to share with you about the world of missions. If you have your Bibles, would you please take them out at this time? <clears throat> take your Bibles out at this time and turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. I'd like to read a very familiar parable to you that's going to really help us this morning to understand the state of missions today. Luke chapter 8, verse 4 says this, And when the crowd was gathered and the people from the town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path that was trampled under feet, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it, choked it. And some fell on good soil and yielded a hundredfold. And he said, as he said these things, he called out and said, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, it's interesting that this parable Jesus actually gives the interpretation to. If you go on and read a little bit further down, uh, in verse 11 it says, Now the parable is this, The seed is the word of God, the ones along the path, are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes it away, or snatches it away, and the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones that uh, fell on the rock are those who, when they have heard the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root, and they believe for a while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. As for the what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And as for the good soil, those are those who, those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we look into this passage of Scripture. Father, thank you so much that your word is so clear to us. We thank you for this parable from Jesus that helps us understand not only our individual hearts, but also the conditions of hearts around the world as we look at what's going on globally. So we just pray that you will open our hearts and minds to this as uh, we look at this passage, that we would know much more about what's going on in the world and also know our part in engaging that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was asked to speak today on the current state of missions in the world, I was immediately drawn to this parable. Uh, we need to remember that missions has gone on in the world, and there's like 55,000 missionaries from North America that serves long-term overseas currently all around the globe. But missions should not be packaged in, the, in, in a business type of, uh, of atmosphere or think that uh, it's really a business world and how we conduct business with you know, return on investment being seen as the end of what we're trying to do, the bottom line. But rather, as Jesus portrays in this parable the idea of a harvest, of a farmer, of a sower, of a crop, of farming, of organic processes taking place, that is a good way to view the world of missions for us as well. 
And you know, when you think of the world of missions, you probably hear missionaries come and go and give their story, and it might get confusing to you as to, you know, what's really going in the, on in the world of missions? And what this parable does for us is it actually puts in four neat little categories the world in which we live today and in which we're conducting missions and how we should be engaging that world ourselves. Now, this parable actually can be applied in two different ways. As you well know, you can apply it to your own hearts, to our own individual hearts. And I suspect that even in this congregation this morning, there's probably those that are represented in every one of these soils. Most likely there is. But besides the individual personal application of this parable, I would like us to look at the bigger picture. I'd like us to look at the global picture. What are the soils out there that are receiving the word of God through all the mission endeavors that are going on, not only from our country, from many, many other countries as well. And I want to, in the second part of my presentation today, talk about current trends and missions. But before we get there, let's look at these soils and see the conditions of hearts of big block areas of the world today where the word of God needs to penetrate and take root and produce a harvest or produce a fruit. So understanding the harvest today from the parable of the soils is what we are out to do. And let's look at the first soil that we see here. But actually, before we get to the first soil, I want to say this. In your Bible, it probably says right above that parable, the parable of the sower. Does that say that in your Bible? Parable of the sower. Why is that there? And the reason that that little title is there is because in the parallel passage that you find in Matthew chapter 13, as Jesus gives the explanation or interpretation of the, of the parable, he says, now the, par the, the meaning of the parable of the sower is this. And so Jesus calls it the parable of the sower. So we call it the parable of the sower. And that's right and the right thing to do. But we could just as readily call this the parable of the soils. Because there's really three elements here. There is the sower, which is pretty constant. And there is the seed, which is the word of God, which is constant. But the soils are which are those things that are variables. Those are the things that are different here. And for us this morning, we would like to take a look and at the soils where God's word is being implanted today by those that are out sowing the seed. Now, you know who your missionaries are. You have a missionary board in the back here, and uh, they're out. I, I, I saw there's all over the world is uh, where you have about mm, 10 or 12 missionaries that are represented uh, by at least one of the congregations here. And I even have uh, a son in Malaysia, a daughter in, in uh, Thailand, who are out there doing the sowing as well in these soils. So just try to apply this to maybe some missionaries you know or the mission program as it is uh, performed here by this church. So let's take a look at these soils. And the first soil that you see that Jesus mentions is the path. He says that some seed fell on the path. And the degree of reception of the soil into that was that it was actually just trampled on and the bird snatched it up. In other words, you see strong imagery here of just rejection of, this, of the seed as it fell on this path. Now, back in the days that Jesus lived, the farmers had much smaller farms than we did, and they had these little pathways throughout their, their garden areas, and they walked those paths to throw the seed, and obviously some would fall down 
on the pathway. And yet that was a place that was non-productive. Very little of any seed resulted there because, as Jesus says, the devil comes and takes it away so that they may not believe and that they may not be saved, it says in verse 12. How should we understand the block of peoples in the world today that represent the path, the hard place, where there's no growth, where there's hardly any, any results at all, no production and no harvest. And I believe that as you think of the big religious blocks in the world today, the world religious traditions, that these are the places that represent the path. Areas of the world that are steeped in Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam, those are the path that need to be sowed. Even though the seed is dropped there by the, uh, by the sower, we find that there's very little production in those areas, and those are hard places to minister. And some of your, minister, some of your missionaries probably minister in the paths, in the places where Hinduism, Buddhism, and Islam are the predominant religions. Now, when we think about the world religions today, we know that if you were to group those three religions together, all together, you'd have well over three billion people in the world. Almost 50% of the world population would be represented by these strong religious traditions that, quite frankly, are very, very hard for people in them to see that the gospel is true for them. And so Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, these religions, up to, I said three billion, actually it's probably more like four billion people are within this group. And you know, here, here's the interesting thing about peoples that live in those religious blocks. Whether they be in the Middle East or across India, and I hear that some of you do have had ministry in India and so forth, is that 85% of those adherents of those religions never ever have the opportunity to meet a Christian, a person who is an actual believer in Jesus Christ. And so the vast majority of these people actually never even have exposure of a person to come and to tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they follow their religions that are based on very much works salvation because every one of those religions, the thing that's completely the same about world religions is that it is a self-saving religion where I must do something in order to be saved. And therefore, my works, my deeds, my merits, my going to the temples, my going to the mosque, my praying five times a day, and on and on and on, are very important because those are the things that hopefully, in the end of my life, will outweigh the bad things in my life. And therefore, it is salvation that is based on doing good deeds. And we all know that the gospel is completely contrary to that, that Jesus did the work for us, and that we are to simply believe by faith that Jesus saves us by grace. And that's a message that's hard for a Buddhist to understand. My daughter writes back and tells me how difficult it is to even convince a Buddhist that there is a God in the world, because in Buddhism, there is no God. There is no God. And therefore, why should I even be responsible to a God? And what's this thing about sins that I... I commit sins against a God when there isn't an, a God that exists. I am my, uh, am my own God. And therefore, I must find my own way to eventually end up in a place called nirvana. 
These mindsets and these worldviews are so contrary to the scripture, are they not? That they really baffle us. Most of us here in, in, in America would say, man, I don't even begin to understand those kinds of worldviews. And yet, that's what they are. Do you know right here in America, there are now over 3,500 mosques where Muslims worship. Well, it wasn't that many years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, you could probably count on, a, on your hand how many mosques there were. In it. But now, they're just proliferating all over the country, and whenever you see a mosque, remind yourselves this, that those people in there think that by following the, the, the five pillars of their faith, that somehow they might get saved, but they never have the assurance that they're saved, even to the point of their deathbed, they will not ever know if they're saved or not. And so we find that the path, the pathway where the seed falls, is a really, really hard place for the gospel to enter and to actually begin to, to gain root. And yet we continue to throw seed on that, that place as well, do we not? Knowing that hopefully God's grace will indeed somehow begin to crack that area and bring the gospel to them. A second one is this. There are those seeds that fall on the rock. It says the rocky place. And um, I believe when Jesus interprets this parable and says that these are people that uh, the plant grows, but then it withers because it has no moisture and take root, that the result is that um, they receive it with joy, but then they fall away. We're talking about that section of Christianity, Christianity, that has access to the gospel, maybe even believed it for a while, and then has rejected it, in part or in whole. Or maybe the fathers of the, of the Christians today, the parents, believed at one time, now they no longer. In other words, we're talking about a block of Christianity. That is a place where the seed falls as well that needs attention in our world today. We're talking about Christians who are Christians by tradition and not by conviction. And you've met them, you know them. Christians by tradition. Oh yeah, I grew up in a such and such home or I was baptized as an infant. Uh, and on and on you hear these different um, things going on about how they believe that somehow, well, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Hindu, therefore I must be a Christian because I live in a nation that's predominantly Christian. And many, many people are that way. You know, there are as many nominal Christians, we call them nominal because that means they are Christian in name only, but not in belief, all right? So we call them nominal Christians. There are just as many of them in the world today as there are Muslims. And that's a lot of people because there are 1.5 billion Muslims in the world today. And there are 1.5 billion people who, quote, call themselves Christians who are not truly, truly believers in Jesus Christ. And they are another soil that we need to sow seed in. And I, as actually, quite frankly, as I looked at your board back there of your missionaries, I find that many of your missionaries are sent to that, those kinds of people, to this block here. It might be a post-Christian world that we're talking about, uh, or it might be these that are just, um, you know, very much just formalistically involved in, Christ in, um, in Christianity, but quite frankly, are not part of that. You know, when I lived in uh, the country of um, Indonesia, the island of Irian Jaya, which is now called Papua, 
native people all around us. The gospel was first presented to those people almost 100 years before my mission, my mission showed up. But they became a very much a nominal church in name only. And when someone would die that was part of that church, they would put three things in the casket when they died to make sure that they were able to get into heaven. One thing that they would put in was their baptism certificate. Another thing was candles, and another thing was sandals. And you might say, well, why would they put those in the casket? I, I'd see this over and over again. And the reason why is this. The rationale was, you know, so-and-so just died, and the pathway to heaven for him is a long, dark place. Therefore, he needs the sandals to be able to walk that long, 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 long path to heaven. And then it's a dark place. Therefore, he needs those candles so that there will be light along the way. And then he needs the baptism certificate because when he finally reaches the gates of heaven, he needs to show to Peter that he was baptized and therefore the baptism certificate. And these believer, the believers would believe that. And now we would say, now, really? Would people? In, yes, people in the world who are nominal Christians will do whatever it takes for them to think that somehow they can save themselves as well. And therefore, the seed needs to fall there as well. But notice the third soil here. The third soil is a soil that's full of thorns, full, uh, full of thorns. And Jesus says that uh, the seed grew up, and then it got choked out. It was choked out by, and he says, by life's worries and riches and pleasures do not mature. The weeds grow up, and these weeds of greed and obsession and possession replace God in their life, and it's pleasure over purity, and it's me over God. And it's just these places that I believe we say are maybe post-Christian altogether, just post-Christian altogether, or they're, they're distracted and disinterested. And although there was a Christian heritage probably in the back, now they are secular humanists. And there's a lot of secular humanists in the world today. We're finding that Europe is just absolutely full of them. I was just in Europe last week, and what I saw on television portrayed there and stuff like that, I'm saying, how did this ever come about? These Europeans have fallen into this self-centeredness and need for the gospel. In other words, we're seeing that there is a soil that is full of weeds that just choke out the gospel. And they want to choke out the church. Their goal is to choke out the church. The secular humanists want nothing of the remnants of Christianity left in their communities. Just this week, I read three stories in the news. Here's the three stories to show you the, the, the endeavors of the secular humanists to make sure we Christians are not able to live out our faith. First of all, in the earlier part of the week, a, um, a, a lady Marine who was, who was um, uh, dismissed from the Marine Corps because she insisted on having a Bible verse at her workstation. And they told her no, and she said, yes, I will keep that there. And eventually she was court-martialed, and she had to leave the service because she would not remove her Bible verse. It was offensive to the people around her. Or the teacher up in Maine, another story this week, who was being sued by a fellow teacher because she simply said to him at a time when there was some conflict there, well, I will pray for you. Oh, you can't tell me you're going to pray for me. I'm offended by you saying that to me. I'm taking you to court because you tell me you're going to pray for me. Man, you can't even say I'm going to pray for somebody, it seems. And then the third one you probably saw at the end of the week on Friday, I think it was, that a very, very famous senator, I guess I won't name him, but he was a presidential candidate as well that you probably know, 
tried to block an appointment in the White House um, because he says this person is a follower of Jesus. And because of that, we are offended. His worldview is not our worldview, and therefore he cannot have this position. This position. He was to be the uh, White House Deputy Director of Management and Budget there. And the senator says, there is no place for that kind of a person in the White House. So there you go, the secular humanists who are there as well. And yet, Jesus says, we are to engage these people where the show proceeds on that kind of a soil and hope for a harvest. But then Jesus goes on and ends on an optimistic note. He talks about one more soil in case we get too depressed with the other soils and talks about the good soil. He says that not only are there thorns and the rock and the path, but there is good soil. A soil where there is recept, uh, re, uh, where it's receptive and also there's a response to the gospel. And this encourages us because we know that people believe in the gospel uh, in places around the world and that are very, very encouraging. And whole blocks of people are coming to believe in Jesus Christ as their personal savior. There is this block of good soil. And today, we're finding that absolutely astoundingly, some of the most fertile soil in the world happens to be the country of China, mainland China. The church growth in China over the last 20 years has been astronomical. The largest church in the world is in China. There are more Bibles in, the, uh, in China than any other parts of the world. There's more preachers in China. China is now the biggest church in the world, and it's growing, and it's growing just the preponderance of population that is there. When you say that there's 100 million Christians in China, well, that's a lot of Christians, and although that's like about 8% of the population that is there, the church continues to grow in just an astounding way. Or the sub-Sahara Africa, another place that the soil is very, very fertile. And um, back 40 years ago, maybe 20% of that, 25% of that area was Christian. Today, it's well over 60% and growing. The, the majority of people that live in sub-Saharan Africa happens to be believers in Jesus Christ. Who would have ever thought that we used to, remember years ago we used to call it the, the dark continent? Remember that? Don't call it the dark continent. You know what the dark continent is? The dark continent is Europe. Europe, 5% of Europeans attend an evangelical church on any given Sunday. 5%. That's the dark continent. Africa, amazing. Or take the country of Korea. Wow, Korea. Astounding how this Buddhist country has become predominantly Christian in this day and age. And now, the Korean church sends out 25,000, that's 25,000 full-time missionaries around the world. Now, they're second to us in America. We send out 55,000. They send out 25,000. They're there, okay? But here's the astounding thing about Korea, that little peninsula. And this is why this whole, you know, in the news, we keep seeing the story about North Korea with their nuclear capability. This is why we as Christians must be concerned. Because one of the most evangelical blocks or countries in the world is right there in South Korea, sending out those 25,000 missionaries. You know what? Right now, in all of Europe, and all the missionaries that are sent from all the countries of Europe, 
they amount up to about 12,000. That means that that one little country is sending twice as many missionaries as all of Europe combined. All of Europe combined. That's a fertile soil. And there's other places that, if we had time, Brazil and other places in Latin America where the church is growing by leaps and bounds. We know that there's good soils. And therefore, we continue on in sowing the seed as Jesus told us to do. Well, what are the lessons for us today as we think about these four types of soil? Here's one thing I'd like you to remember. First of all, in today's world, you cannot divide these soils into regional regions or world regions. All these soils are found in every part of the globe, and the world is a mixture of these soils. You'll find these soils right here in the greater Portland area, across America, everywhere in the world that you go, the soils are mixed. Now, there's some areas that one soil is a little bit stronger than another, like if you were to go to the Middle East, obviously it's the path and the rock that you might find there. But that's one thing we see. And secondly is this, the seed needs to be sown on all these varieties of soils simultaneously. No mission endeavor is more important than any other, and no one missionary more important than any other. No more mission work more valid than any other, because it's focusing on one of the soils uh, as opposed to another type of the soil. They all need the seed put upon them or sown upon them. And therefore, we need to remember that we, we, we don't denigrate some ministry in one part of the world because we want to elevate one and it's all together that we should be simultaneously sowing these seeds. And then the third thing is this. Do not expect the same amount of yield in every place or in every country or in every people group that is out there. Jesus says that in this good soil that there was the, the yield of 100-fold. Now, Don and I grew up on a little farm in New Jersey where we had corn. My dad would grow corn. And it was amazing that that one little kernel that we would plant in the ground would yield a ear of corn that would have hundreds of ear, uh, kernels on it, right? And you've all seen that. You know that. And, and that's what Jesus says. And actually, in the parallel passage over in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, and it yielded 100-fold and 60-fold and 30-fold. In other words, there's varying degrees of response. But there's response. There is response. And therefore, we are encouraged. Our heart is encouraged. And I hope that you're encouraged. As you continue to engage in missions through whoever you have that is sent out there, that you would be discerning, first of all, about the four types of soils out there that your people are working in. And you know what you might want to do over lunchtime today with your kids? Sit down with your kids with the list of missionaries that you have and know where they work and try to categorize them into different soils. Just say, oh, we have this many in this soil. Just, just kind of see where you are as a church. Or maybe your elder board wants to do that as you think about your missions in the future. If you have a missions committee, obviously they should be doing it. Anyway, do that kind of a thing too. Just kind of know. Just be in a know about where we have workers working in the soils of the world today. Now, I want to finish by doing another thing with you today. And I want to bring you up to date on some current trends that are going on in the world. That uh, Because I was asked when I was to come here, hey, tell us what's going on in the world today. And I, I gave you an overview from this passage of scripture that I think really helps 
give the foundation of what's going on in the world. But now let me get a little bit more specific with you and say this. Back in 1977, my wife and I began the process of raising support so that we could go to Indonesia as missionaries. That means that we've now been engaged in missions for 40 years. 40 years. We're old. <laughs> We're old people. We just celebrated our 44th birth, uh, anniversary uh, two days ago. So, yeah, we're, we're getting up in age. But what I have done for you is this. I sat down and I thought, what has transpired over the past 40 years in the world of missions that takes it from one category that it used to be known as to another? And here they are. Here, uh, I'd like to give you, let's see now, how many have I given you here? Mark's my notes. I'd like to give you six. I had about seven or eight, and I cut it back down, knowing that uh, too much information might be overloaded. But here are six really big things that have transitioned over the past 40 years. First of all, from a geographical focus to a people group focus. It used to be that we would think about missions, oh, you have to go over to Africa. You have to go over to Europe. You have to, and, 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 and find the people there. Well, obviously, because of, of migrations of peoples today and other things, and actually the idea that Jesus wants us to win what's called the, uh, he says it in Greek in, in Matthew 28, the pantata ethne, the, the ethne, the ethnic groups, that the big focus of missions today is not where we serve geographically, but the people groups in the world that still need to be reached. Now, we have people that do all the counting. There are these bean counters that spend all day counting. So I got statistics for you about you might be saying, like, how many people groups are there? It, it, it used to be that we knew that there was 239 countries in the world, right? 239 countries. But within each country, there are sub-countries or sub-nations or, you know, like the Cherokee Nation in America, the, the, these, you know, these Indian nations and stuff. There's these people groups that are there, and that's 16,500 of those. Therefore, we know that our task in the Great Commission is to implant the gospel in every people group on the earth today. Now, we know that 9,000 of those people groups have been considered what we call reached. Okay? But that still leaves another, what is it, 6,000? 6,000, that really have been classified as unreached, and we need the gospel spread to them. So we've moved from geographical emphasis to people group emphasis. Secondly, we've moved from being going to remote and hitherland places, like I did with my family, to urban centers. Because over the past 40 years, the world has urbanized, and now not only is half, but more than half of the world is living in urban centers like this great, greater uh, Portland area and so forth, urban centers. So we, we meet people where they are. And although I took my family to a very remote island and we worked with peoples that were way up in the, tri in the hills and the tribes and stuff like that, now the tribes have all come down to the coast and they're all living next to the city. And therefore, the emphasis needs to be not on pioneer missionaries to the hitherlands, but pioneer missionaries to the greater cities of the world. And therefore, the emphasis is, is, is changing over to urban ministries. Thirdly, from primary being long-term service in missions to a flood of short-term and digital engagement. 
It used to be that, quite frankly, we had missionaries that I call settlers that would go overseas like my family and settle in and live amongst those people for 40 years, 30 years, and then retire, right? The long-term missionaries, long time. Now there's still a lot of those. I told you earlier there's 55,000 of them somewhere in the world, right? But there's so many short-term mission groups. And short-term, and I think I heard one this morning saying you got a team coming back from somewhere. And, you know, the short-term and even the um, digital evangelization has taken place. Digital missionaries, short-term missionaries, and long-term missionaries. Missions is now a combination of all three. And we should be utilizing all three. Do not neglect the long-term missionaries. They are the flesh and blood that are out there that need our assistance with our short-term team. Do not neglect them. Sure, engage in short-term missions. A lot of benefits to that. But also the digital missions that have gone on. We live in a world that has become very, very sophisticated with uh, uh, the online stuff and all. That That's an important part of ministry as well. So from long-term missions to short-term service and also to digital missions is now a trend. A fourth one is this. We, over the last 40 years, have moved from being a predominantly Western-based missionary movement to a majority world mission movement. In other words, back in 1970, when I went to the mission field, 60 to 70% of the missionaries in the world, probably 70% of the world, were from North America and Europe. We call it the North Atlantic missions, all right? It was like monocentric, European, Caucasian missionaries going around the world. That was 40 years ago. Today, it's just flipped. It's just the opposite. 30% are in that category, and 70% are from the rest of the world, from the majority world, from Brazil, from Korea, from Nigeria, from the Philippines, and on and on and on. All these, we call it polycentric missions. That's a new word you might here in the future. Polycentric missions is that there's many, many different centers that are sending missionaries, and praise God, the onus is no longer on us in the West to do all the work in missions, and although we still have as many missionaries going out as we did 30, 40 years ago, they are joined by so many from the other parts of the globe that we're not only the not only ones, we are now the minority in the work of missions. And so when you send missionaries out overseas now, most likely they're going to be on a multicultural team. It's very usual that you would have maybe an American couple on a team with a Korean couple, with a couple from, say, Macau, or a couple that came from the Philippines, and that makes up a team. It's very multicultural. And that's actually one thing I'm going to be teaching down in my global leadership class this week at Western Seminary, is how do you live on a multicultural team? Because that's where missions is today. All right? Very, very important. And then let me give you another one, number five. From doing missions based on Jesus' mandate to Jesus' model. Now, this, I believe, is an unfortunate uh, uh, switch in many, many churches. And I don't know if this church is there. I don't think you are. But what I mean by that is this. We said earlier the Great Commission. And you all said one of the passages. By the way, I wrote a book on the Great Commission. And there's five times that Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, and he kept adding information every time he gave it to them. And so the Great Commission, telling us exactly where to go, how to do it, the model to, uh, to follow and stuff like that, all that is there. And so we want to evangelize because Jesus told us to. That's his mandate, right? Well, some people say, you know, let's, let's put the mandate aside and 
we don't need that. What we need really is, you know, Jesus was such a loving, compassionate guy and went around doing a lot of good things. Let's follow his model. Let's just model our lives after him. They take Luke chapter 4, which talks about Jesus when he was in Nazareth, and he told the people there, you know, I've come to heal the brokenhearted, to release the captives, and blah, blah, blah. It goes on, you know, what he did. And, he's, and people say, oh, that's what we need to be doing. All these really good things. Rather than proclaiming the gospel, let's just help people with their physical and social needs. And there's been a real shift in that way. And, you know, so much money in missions now. We've just done some research on, on this in the group that I'm in. It's easy to get money for those engaged in that model-type ministry, those good, compassionate works, than it is on the mandated things of evangelism, discipleship, and planning the church. One last one. From overseas, as pri being primary, going over to being missional. Where, well, our church is a missional church. We no longer send missionaries anywhere. You know, that's, that's fine. We're, we're just kind of being intentional here in our community, and we're helping out our community in many ways, and hopefully people will catch the gospel through what we do. And that becomes a primary emphasis. So from missions to missional. And that's another thing that's a danger that really takes a lot of discussion for us to, to kind of work that through. But let me close with this. I know that we're really coming up to the end of the hour. I had one more little segment for you, and that's this. What is the global context then that all this is taking place in? What's the global context of really being shifting around the world that our witness to the world, our missionaries in the world are facing? I'm not going to talk a lot about these. I, I, I'll just kind of list them. I have seven here. One or all. First of all is international migration from south to north. Peoples are migrating on an unprecedented rate than, uh, than any time in the history of the world because we have the technology for people to do that. And for, fi for 500 years, people migrated from the west and from the north to the south because of colonization. Now it's just the opposite. People are migrating from the south to the north. And they're taking advantage of all those avenues that were built by the north to the south and there's reverse migration coming this way. And so be expecting many, many more people from southern countries, from Asia, from Africa, from South, to be coming our way because it is a flood of people that cannot be stopped. That's a global shift. Number two, the destabilization of the Middle East by conflict. Destabilization of the Middle East. As we well know, you see it in the news almost weekly, and you just look and say, when is it all going to end? Is there ever going to be able to bring peace and, and stability to that part of the world, and it's still going to be a lot farther off, and it continues to be destabilized, and it makes it hard for us to have a witness there. Third one, the de-Christianization of Europe. Over the past 40 years, after World War II, and, and, and especially the past 40 years, we've seen that Christianity has decreased, shrunk, decreased, decreased, to the point that hardly anyone goes into those magnificent cathedrals anymore, and quite frankly, it's just become, Christianity has become a thing of the past that they have left, and they become secularized, and now human secularism is really the, um, the predominant belief of those areas. The fourth one is this. Diminished number of Christians in the Middle East, and this is by war and by ISIS. About 30 years ago, 40 years, 30 years ago, there was 14 or so percent of the Middle East was Christian. Yeah, they were Coptic Christians and other things, but they were Christian. Now today, it is 3%. Because of all that's gone on with ISIS and the wars and, 
you know, just two weeks ago, uh, you read about the, uh, the, the killing of 20 Christians at a bus in, in Europe, and on and on the stories are of Christians being martyred, massacred, killed, uh, forced to flee, and we just see that this is a big area of the world that was more Christian than it was than it is today. Number five, evangelization of sub-Saharan Africa and China. I kind of talked about that earlier, so I'm not going to go there. Number six, the affluence of, of Europe, it's, uh, of Asia. It's astounding to see the shift of wealth in the world from Europe and America to Asia. But it's happening. And all you need to do is take an airplane ride there to see. I mean, you stop and you, you land in the airport in Seoul, Korea, or in Singapore, or in Tokyo, and you say, man, this is a beautiful building. Everything's spanking brand beautiful, you know, high tech, really well. And then you land at this place like two weeks ago, I was in Edinburgh, Scotland. That place was the pits. The airport was the pits. And it was just, it was just a mess. And I'm thinking, what a contrast between the shift of wealth. And you can see it by indicators like that. And so, you know, when, when President Trump was running, just, I'm not getting political, he says, man, we have nothing but third world airports here in America. Well, he's right. I mean, if you go back to that part of the world and see what other parts of the world are doing, it, it's that way. The, the affluence of Asia is rising, and therefore, as the church continues to grow in Asia, the money's going to be there as well. And people are predicting this. In, ninth, in 2050, 2050, the largest mission force in the world will be from China in 2050, and the most money going into missions will be from China. It's all shifted that way. One more, and then we're going to quit. Number seven, the growing revivalness or Pentecostal or charismatic movement, especially in Latin America, but all over the world. We're finding that uh, you know, the, the church today is more charismatic in its makeup than non-charismatic in its makeup. It's just the way the church is. And that's the part of the, that part of the world. They, they love that more expressive type emotional Christianity. And there's, that's the Christianity that you're going to come up against when you go to those areas. All right? So I am sorry I've taken a lot of time. But I wanted to bring you up to date and just show you the big picture of what's going on in the world of mission, both from God's word and also from trends that are going on today, with the hopes that this might give you some fodder to, you know, use to think about and think how we as a church are doing missions and that you will be very much in tune with the trends of the world and what's going on as you go forward in your witness to the world. Let's close in prayer. Oh, wait a minute. Am I supposed to close in prayer? Uh, I'm not going to close in prayer. I'm going to now give it over to Jack. Pastor Jack is uh, going to come at this time and uh, lead us on. Would you come down here with us? Sure. I'll do that. Let's move this stuff. Uh, first of all, I want to personally thank you for being here today. This has been great for me. Thank you. I've read your books, and you're the man. Uh, <laughs> uh, my former roommate in college, who has become quite a missions expert himself, I told him that Marvin was going to be here because, frankly, I wanted to check you out. <clears throat> and uh, he said, you will be very pleased uh, to have this man in your church. He'll be a blessing. So we don't often get a general in God's army here in Malala. This is an opportunity for you to ask 
one of God's special people in the earth today, your question. So I hope you've been thinking about a special missions question or any question. And, and I'll start sure. by asking you to repeat a story that you told in one of your books about a Muslim family that came to your island and uh, they were looking for help. They needed help. Oh. Uh, you remember that story? Yeah, and I now, didn't do a good job with them, did I? Uh, no, yeah. but but it it I think it showed yeah. your humility and it showed your teachability, and I would like them to hear that story. <laughs> In Indonesia, the Indonesian government is trying to unload from the central island of Java, the overpopulated place, people over to where my island was because there's a lot of space. And really, it, what it is is a program to do what we did to the American Indians years ago. We took over the West. Well, they're taking over this country. And so they're bringing Muslim families. They're just flying them in, flying them in, flying them in, putting them on boats, bringing them in. One of these families migrating came to my office one day when I was there. They just had gotten off the boat. They were hungry. They, they, they were just needed some help. And they came into the door and asked us for assistance. And I stood there. And because I keep seeing the, the land of our people, my people, the Papuan people, the native people there, being gobbled up by these people and they're taking over, I... Instead of helping them, I, I reprimanded them. I said, you know, why, why are you coming here for assistance? Your government has given you all the money you need to, tra to transfer your family over here. You're given a free house when you get here. You get one year of food while you are here to get established. And you're coming to my office. Uh, I, I'm not here to help you. You have another office, the government immigration, uh, transmigration office. You need to go over there. And so we gave them a little taxi money and sent them over there. And I felt very badly after I did that because not only was I representing missions, but I was representing Jesus. And we turned, we turned away, you know, a person in need. We should have been. I, if that Muslim family has disdain for me ever since that, that day, I, I don't blame them. It was a very, very poor way of doing missions in that instance. Have any I should have put that story in a book. No, no, no. <laughs> have any of you identified with that story? Do any of you have those feelings today about people coming to this country and that you have some deep-seated resentment about that? Hello. Some of you aren't raising your hands, but you do anyway. Okay. Uh, questions? You want to work with me? Testing. There we go. My question is, uh, going into the mission field now is very uh, difficult due to the fact that we can't go as missionaries. We have to have a cover story to be able to get into some of these countries. How are we dealing with that? Yeah, there is a good portion of the world that you cannot go as a missionary any longer. Now, there are places that you can. For instance, my, my daughter and her family, they're working in Thailand. They're there as missionaries and doing fine in, in Thailand. But if you just go over to Malaysia, the next country over, no, you cannot do that. So you're talking about that part of the world and those parts of the world. And so there's a lot of creative ways, and we call it creative access ministries that people are trying to do to go there. Some are doing what we call business as mission or missional business where they're going in there in a business platform and performing business, but they're trying to start a church on the side. And that's probably the most popular way to do it. 
There is also, you know, internet is, is global. And internet ministries are phenomenal. And these countries that think they can block missionaries out, well, they can't block the message out. And so the message is being sent by say, even the internet or by radio and television programs. In the Middle East, there's a Sat7 television uh, station that broadcasts as Christian, uh, Christian uh, TV programs all over the Middle East. People love them because they're top-notch and done well with a subtle Christian message always there. So there's just a lot of different ways that we're being very creative. And one thing I like about American missions is because w is we in America like ingenuity. We like ideas. We like enterprise. We like, you know, we like to think things differently. And a lot of different parts of the world don't, doesn't do that. But we, we have that strength. And so we've been able to, uh, I think, continue to have a good impact on the world because of creative thinking in those areas. I understand that uh, Costa Rica is sending coffee businesses. Uh -huh. How do you um, how do you concentrate on building a business and still preach the gospel? Well, you know, uh, ma'am, you've asked a key question <laughs> that mission mission people, missiologists, we call them, sit down and scratch their heads all the time and think, how do you balance the two? How do you balance the two? And it really is up to the individual knowing how much time he can devote to one or the other and how he can be a witness in that, in that way. And so in some places, there's more free time to do it. In other places, there's hardly an hour you know, for them to, to do that. And so maybe just their presence there to start out is all that they can do in, in those situations. So that's, that's a tough one. There's no easy answer to that. Okay, I see a hand in the back. I was just wondering, uh, when you mentioned about the, the uh, expansion of Christians in China, uh, it seemed like in the past uh, the uh, feeling was that uh, they were adding Christians to their original religion and, uh, you know, rather than being genuine converted Christians. Right, yeah. Uh, what, what is the uh, status you, you know, that's very good because here's what happened. And although we could not see this back in the 60s and 70s when the, uh, the revolution, the communist revolution took place in, in China and there was the purge and stuff like that and Christians were in prison and stuff like that. What that did at that time also suppressed all the other religions, Buddhism especially. And so once they came out of that in 1989 and all and began to open up is that the church was purged of a lot of what we call syncretism, when you merge two religions together. And what you have now is a much more pure faith in the church in China than in the past because they went through this purifying stage of going through and just purifying the church of all those that really, really were not true believers, the nominal believers. And you have now a very vibrant church in China that I would say we could identify very much with in, in most things. Okay. In China, if you ever go to China, maybe some of you have been there. There's the very open church, the church buildings, and the, you can go to church building on Sunday. It's called the Three Self Church or the, the um, Chinese Christian Church, uh, CCC. 
and those are like government-permitted churches. Then you have the, the other churches that we say are the underground or the churches that meet more in secretly. And the, the vibrancy is found in both. We're finding that there is true believers in both places. It's not, we shouldn't think that, oh, because they are the three-self church, that church there is a liberal church or a church that's gone away from the Lord. No, I've been in some big churches there, 2,000, 3,000 people, vibrantly celebrating their faith in Christ. Everyone have the Bible in their laps because it's permitted in those churches, and they were very, very, very what we call evangelical type churches. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, our mission had Korean missionaries going into China and working with the church there, and uh, there's an affinity there because they are so closely connected with heritage and language and stuff that are very similar. And what uh, the uh, South Koreans would like to do is, especially one of their strategies, is using China as a springboard to go into North Korea because they they're blocked off from South and North Korea. They go around the upper part and get into North Korea to, in order to have a witness there and to have the, there is. There's a very, there's a, there is a small witness that is there and it's, we don't know much about it, but we know that there are indeed believers there. Again, there's radio, there's internet, there's stuff like that. And there are true believers in North Korea. There are, there are, and there's ministries that are actually going in, especially from China border into Northern part of Korea, uh, North Korea and working down. So there, it's very dangerous in many respects, but there are ministries there. Yeah. Um, you talked about the migration from the south to the north, and yeah. we have a lot of immigration coming here to the United States. If we can get past our own ideas of, I don't want people coming to my country, yeah. what are some of the best ways that we could reach out to the people that are migrating here? Yeah. You know what? People who are in transition, like migrants, are more open to the gospel than if they were sitting back in their village or their town back in their homeland because they have all the social pressures of their village upon them to not open up to new ideas and new religions. But when they come here, they are looking, they are searching for, um, for stability, for acceptance. They want to fit in. They want to be able to speak the language well and all. One of the best things you could do is just start holding English conversation classes because they want to come and practice and practice their English so that they can fit in. And so uh, just to do that in your home or have hospitality nights for them. When there's an American holiday like a Christmas or Thanksgiving that they don't know anything about, invite them in and say, hey, we just want to show you what, this is a cultural event. Will you come to my house for a cultural event? We want to show you what Thanksgiving is in America and bring them in and you know, serve them the turkey and everything. This is the stuff we usually eat like that. Just want to show you what this is all about. And most likely, they will do it. You need to remember this. They are more open than closed as they come here. They're more willing to come and interact with you than not willing to because they are trying to find stability in their lives too. And they're willing to shed their old worldviews, old lifestyles, if they find that the new one is adequate for them as they settle in here. And they do want to settle in here as part of what we are. Now, we know that there are some that come here and they try to stay in their own enclaves, like you might have this group of Hmong people, and all they want to do is have Hmong people here, and it's hard to crack into that. There's a little bit of that going on, but most, usually, they're spread throughout the communities, and they're accessible to us, so we can, we can befriend them. And I would say this. The attitude is this, is to 
know that they're more willing to engage than you think they are. And also, peoples of other countries do not have the taboo that they don't want to talk about religion and politics. No, they want to talk about religion and politics. And they'll ask you everything they, they can about Christianity, about why you believe what you believe. They'll, they'll open up to that. So don't be afraid to talk about those topics. Those uh, small groups that you were talking about that are kind of like the hard soil in this area, what is the best way to sow the seed to those that are, just seem to want to you know, stay to themselves? Yeah, like those, the first block of the, the, those on the path right. kind of a thing. Well, you know, the, the, you can't do that with short-term missions, all right? You can't. Short-term missions only work best when they're connected with long-term missionaries that are already there. Best thing to do is do what we've been doing through, cent through the last century or two, and that is send long-term missionaries to go there to learn their language, to learn their culture, and to build relationships. And so they are there, and as long as they're there, they're making little inroads, a little bit at a time. Over years, hopefully they'll start to break up that soil a bit because of their winsome witness that is there. So. I'd say the strategy is to continue be incarnated, incarnating the message of Christ through your life by you being there, living out that life for yourself. Show them what a Christian home is like. Show them what a Christian business is like. Um, I hear the United States being called a post-Christian country these days, and I'm wondering how many Christians from other countries come to the United States to evangelize here? Well, this might surprise you. America receives more missionaries into America than any other country receives missionaries. There are more missionaries that have come to America from Nigeria. You find them. They're down probably in Portland. Nigeria, from the Philippines, from Brazil. We have more missionaries coming and serving in America than we even send out to other countries. So there's a lot that are here. You may not know them, but they're, they're around. And so they're here doing their work. Now, many times they're working among their own people group, their own people. You know, if it's a Korean, he's in a Korean community and he's trying to win Koreans for Christ in his, Korea, in his community. Or if they're Filipinos, so they stay maybe within that group and that's why you don't know a lot about them. But at least they're here and they're doing that because we're not doing that many times. So let them do it, you know? Yeah. Yes. Thank you, first, for coming. I have kind of an observation and a question. It seems to me, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but countries that are non-Christian subdue the women and children, and often they're not treated very well. And I'm just wondering if the coming of Christianity, it's been my thought that the status of women and children increases a lot and are treated much better with the coming of Christianity. I'm wondering if you find that's true in these countries. That statement is true, absolutely true. Categorically true. It, it is liberating for the women in those cultures when they become a Christian community. And they are, they are elevated to a place of, of uh, being honored and to be seen as equal with men. You know, most of those places, the, the woman is seen as a sub well, almost a subhuman in the fact that she's not a, a male, therefore she's not as good as the rest of us. And so there, there is that liberating 
that liberating thing. Polygamy ends, you know, voluntarily most of the time. The chief across the street from me when I first went there in 1978, he had five wives. He had five wives. And, 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 and that was pretty typical. Every 10 years, he took a new wife that was younger. So he had all these young, younger, younger girls. It was kind of the way they do it. But those women were, were treated like the pigs in the yard. They were not, you know, they were just not valued at all. Christianity changes that and gives women a place of status that is that they wouldn't know earlier. It all goes back to Genesis 1 being created in the image of God, both male and female being that thing, you know. So starting with those teachers, that teaching really just it just really it's brand new to those people to think that. Yes. of Christians in, in uh, Russia. There's been a lot of newer ministries going there that actually are finding now that they're getting more and more restricted by the government and what to do. And so there, there was a, a real surge in the 90s and, and 2000s. Now it's kind of leveled off. And uh, there's still witness there. There's still, there's still missions there. But it's not, a, not the uh, aggressive pace of church growth that we saw back, uh, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 and 20 years ago, Soviet Union. Was that to be the last one? Or you're still on a roll? That's good. I'm, I'm here until Friday, so. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. Uh, I don't know whether they're more hungry or more loaded with questions. <laughs> yes. Okay. The potluck's waiting. I guess it's gone. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate your patience hanging in here for this long. Let's it's been an hour. In, shall we? Yeah. Let's pray for Marv and then we'll pray for Neil. Now, Jesus, this is your servant, and we thank you for him. We thank you for his gifts, for his good mind. We pray for his health and for his family's health. We thank you for his dear wife, even though she's not here today. And we ask, Father, that you would keep them safe. We need him. We need his ministry. We need all that he's doing. And so we pray that you will continue to use him in this hour. We thank you for the great movement across the earth of Jesus and his followers. And we ask, dear Father, that when we all get to heaven, we will have done our part and we won't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ and we won't hide out when you ask us if we have been faithful. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be part of the good soil and that you would use us and guide us and grow things in us that are good Father, we ask that you would bless the meal that we're to have. We ask that you would bless it to our body's use and also bless the hands that prepared it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to do what we do best. We're going to go eat. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Just what I was doing.